together. And let's turn to Acts chapter 13. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Acts together. And we come to Acts chapter 13, verse 42. If you're with us today and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and they'll put a Bible in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. So the title of my message this morning is uh, Allergies and Other Consequence of the Fall. And uh, if we get an amen out of uh, some here today. Verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes uh, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. And then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to everlasting life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all of the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they, that is Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are and what you are and who and what you alone are in this world and this creation and in our life. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to approach you and any kind of way of self-righteousness or uh, shame or anything like that. There's nothing you don't know about us. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you have begun in our lives as your children, and thank you for the promise that you will bring that work to completion. We have felt that this week. We have felt you cause us to grow in many ways in our Christ-likeness and in our relationship with you, and we thank you for that. And we pray that you would make this morning and this time in your word another part of all of that work of your spirit in our lives. We pray for the men and women that you love and are standing before you right now that have not yet trusted in your son for salvation. And Lord, the importance of them making that decision and making that decision today. And we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit, that they will need for that light to go on and for them to realize that they are coming home and coming to you, Lord, and putting their faith in Jesus and gaining a friend and a companion and a, a lover of their souls and a God and a shepherd and a heavenly Father that they desperately need in their life. We pray, Lord, for that work of your Spirit in them and that revelation of your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Please be seated. Paul and Barnabas are on their, the first of the Apostle Paul's three missionary journeys, and they have come to a city by the name of Antioch of Pisidia in what is we know today as in the region of modern-day Turkey. The Apostle Paul did hear in the early stages of his first missionary journey what he will do through all of his missionary journeys, and that is when there was a city that he came to and there was a Jewish synagogue present, he would make a point to make a visit to that Jewish synagogue as the starting point for bringing the gospel of salvation to that city. He brought the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Greek. That was the order. And that's exactly what has happened here as we talked about uh, some of this the last time we were together. And as he came into that synagogue, as was his custom, he's sitting there and he's watching a synagogue uh, service unfold. They're uh, virtually identical in terms of how uh, you know, uh, what a synagogue service was then and what it is today. And a portion of that service, and the middle portion of it, would be the reading of a passage of Scripture from the Law of Moses, and then also another reading uh, from the Law and the Prophets from the Prophets, and that would be read. And then at that point, whoever was the head of the synagogue would then turn to somebody or whoever had been assigned to then preach the sermon uh, to the congregation that was gathered. And at this point, whoever was the head of that synagogue turned to Paul and Barnabas and invited them to essentially deliver the sermon that morning. The Apostle Paul, of course, was very, very happy to do that because he, that's what he had come to Antioch of Pisidia to do to begin with, was to preach the gospel to them. This is known as an open door when in a Jewish synagogue the floor is given to you now to preach the sermon, and he was happy to do that. That's what he had come uh, to the city to do. And the sermon that Paul delivered, as we've seen before, essentially Paul gave them an overview of their history and of God's active and God's gracious involvement in their lives as God's people, in calling Abraham as the father of the nation, in delivering them out of Egypt, in guiding them and providing for them through the 40 years of their wandering through the wilderness, in giving them the land of Canaan, in looking after them through the long season of the judges when they followed after their sin and walked far away from God and then got sick of their sin and wanted to turn back to God, and God would send a judge to them in order to uh, bring them back into that relationship. He spoke even of God's grace in giving them a king, King Saul, when they clamored for a king, and then in blessing them with the greatest king in their entire history, that is the King David, who he described in verse 22 as being a man God described as being a man after my own heart who will do my will. And then the pinnacle, the high point, he's laying a foundation in all of that. The high point of the sermon was Paul then spoke to them of the greatest expression of God's grace to them of all, and that was the coming of their Messiah in the person of Jesus, who is the Christ. 
And then when Paul declared Jesus to them, he uh, he, uh, called on his audience then to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And in doing so, not only would they be forgiven of their sins, but they would receive justification from God. God would then view them as being just as if they had never sinned. And this was a position and a relationship with God that the law of Moses could never, ever uh, provide. And Paul then closed his sermon with a very, very strong warning to them against uh, failing to trust in Jesus. He does that in verses 40 and 41. And a failure to trust in Jesus in light of this amazing uh, foundation he has made for putting your faith in Jesus as the Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. That was the sermon, that was the message that he delivered on that morning. And in our text, the Holy Spirit gives us something interesting. He gives us their response to that sermon. The Holy Spirit could have just included the sermon. He said, all right, I got the sermon. But the Holy Spirit also wants us to realize that there was a response to the sermon and to know what that response uh, was. Every sermon produces a response, always. Every time we share the gospel, Uh, with a person, an individual, or whether we do it to a group of people or we do it in a church service like this, there's always a response in a person's uh, privacy of their own heart to that message that we declare, the message that God has called us uh, to declare. There's always a reaction. There are three reactions that are listed for us here, and they are the principal reactions, not only of people 2,000 years ago, but even today. First, there were people who, upon hearing the offer of salvation from God, immediately trusted in Jesus. Their response was faith, verse 43. And so many of the Jews were told, many, it's a wonderful word when we're talking about salvation, many of the Jews and the Gentiles in the synagogue, they believe the message, we're told, and then you picture it within your mind. Paul and Barnabas are now walking out of the physical building. They're going out of the exit of that building, out into a courtyard or out under the street or whatever it might be, and these people are following after them. It's like they don't want the church service to end. They still have uh, questions that they want to uh, ask of, of him. They don't want him to stop uh, preaching, and so Paul uh, persuaded them to continue, we're told, in the grace of God, that is, that they were to continue their new relationship with God uh, based upon grace and based upon faith in Jesus. The second reaction is given to us in verse uh, 42, where we're told that others wanted to simply know more. They liked what they heard, but they weren't quite yet ready to, you know, trust in Uh, Jesus for salvation. And so they asked for an opportunity to hear more. And the Gentiles in particular did so. And you notice that the intensity of their desire to know more about this God that you're talking about and his son is encapsulated in that word in the verse, and it's the word beg. They are literally pleading with him not to stop with what it is that he had already told them, but that he would then tell them more. And the reason that they wanted to hear more about what Paul had said to them is that what Paul had said to them was mind-boggling to them. You know, we live, we're in a room here right now where 
the, the overwhelming majority of us are Gentiles. We are non-Jews. And most of us haven't been raised in a Jewish context. That was the context of, of that, uh, that synagogue, a context certainly of Israel in the, in the ancient world. So we're really used to the fact that God loves the whole world. He loves the Jews. He loves the Gentiles. We just kind of come to accept that. And, um, and it, do, it doesn't awe us anymore. It doesn't produce any kind of major emotional or mental reaction within us. But it did in them. And the reason is, is that because of just the way that things kind of were, uh, the Gentile proselytes or converts to Judaism, they always felt like they were kind of a second-class citizen to the Jews. Uh, that somehow they could never attain to their level, that God loved the Jews more than everyone else, and, and the Gentiles just kind of had to follow in their wake. In fact, in those days, and even today, and it's a part of the Jewish Talmud, but you have many observant Jews today, uh, men who wake up each morning, and the first prayer that comes out of their mouth before they even leave their bed is, God, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Now, when that's your prayer and that's your attitude toward other people and toward Gentiles, that's going to rub off. So the idea that God loved Gentiles as much as he loved Jews, this was like an explosion in their brain. Nobody had told them this before, and they wanted to know more uh, about it. The third reaction to Paul's message was uh, the rejection, and that's the very word that Paul uses in verse 46. And so we're told that a week later, the following Sabbath or Saturday, that some of the Jews, when they uh, came to the synagogue, they saw that virtually the whole city had come to the synagogue now, not to hear them, but to hear what Paul had to say. And they, you know, might not have been able to ever fill that synagogue, and here are these strangers that come in talking about Jesus, and now not only is the synagogue full, but they probably can't even get them in the room, and they're all out on the street. And when they see this, we're told that they were filled with envy over all of it, and as a result of their envy toward Paul, and the fruit he was having, they contradicted him, they blasphemed him, and they opposed him. So they began, again, you can picture it in your mind, they begin interrupt him, him while he's preaching. Uh, they begin to contradict Paul's interpretation of the Scriptures. They begin to blaspheme Paul. The word blaspheme means uh, injurious speech. They were slandering him. They were calling him names while he was teaching this group of people. The Jews weren't through yet, the Jews of this ilk. Many of them had believed, but those that were resistant here, they then stirred up the prominent uh, women within the synagogue and, and those who were married to prominent men and powerful men within the city. In those days, uh, a lot of uh, women uh, converted to Judaism. A lot of Gentile women did. Men did too. But the women were especially attracted to it because, uh, you know, basically pagan Rome, uh, the, the gods that, the, that were worshipped were essentially just extensions or the renaming of uh, Greek deities. And these deities, you know, were very superstitious. They allowed people to engage in terrible immorality and drunkenness and partying and all of this kind of stuff. And when you're worshiping those kind of gods and then you see the effect that it has on individuals 
and then on society as a whole, thinking people would stop and look at it and say, I don't like where this God takes people, and I don't like what it turns people into. And then when women would discover the God of the Bible and realize there's just one God, there's not millions of gods or dozens of gods, and then they looked at the law of God and they began to see the kind of human being, the kind of morality, the kind of holiness, the quality of life that was produced by simply obeying the commands of this God, they saw the broad gap between the two, it appealed to them. It, Judaism appealed to them, and they became a part of Judaism. And there were some of these women in that synagogue, and they were powerful. These women that are being spoken of here, not all of them were in that, that category, but they were prominent because and they were married to prominent men. And so these Jews that led the synagogue probably went to them and said, listen, we got to stop this, and, and we need your husband's help in this. We know he doesn't come to synagogue, but you can get his ear. And then they went to other officials within the city to now try and get some kind of a law or some kind of some, a ruling passed to now get Paul and Barnabas kicked uh, out of the city. And so uh, they were uh, uh, not only sought that, but they were then successful in that. And when Paul and Barnabas were told in verse 51, when they left the city, they shook the dust off of uh, their feet against these uh, rejectors within the city. Jesus had taught his disciples that when they left an inhospitable place, that they were to wipe the dust uh, off of their feet. Not to do it out of pride or to do it out of arrogance, but in order to emphasize to those who were rejecting uh, the gospel and rejecting God's people to make them realize how serious their decision and their rejection was, to reject God, His Son, and His salvation. But as unfair and as humiliating as these actions were against Paul and Barnabas, the, both they and the new Christians within the city were told they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit there in verse 52. Paul left that city, his, the humiliation of it, the blasphemy of it, the opposition of it, and so forth, but he left with joy because he was leaving a city that was now filled with people who once did not have a relationship with God, and now they did have a relationship with God. And that was what was mo most important to Paul in his life, not his reputation, but that people would be uh, born again. And, and even though here they are, they managed to get Paul and Barnabas kind of driven out of town, there's the recognition with Paul and the disciples that the Holy Spirit stayed in the city and stayed with his people. So you could drive Paul and Barnabas out, but you can't drive the Holy Spirit out of a place. And what God had begun in Antioch of Pisidia, God was going to bring to completion. And how many of us think, you know, no need to raise hands, but you think about us within this room, or maybe you know somebody or somebody that you've shared with, where somebody prayed with you to become a Christian and knowing that after that prayer was over, the kind of home you were going to go back into, the kind of neighborhood, the town, uh, the family, or whatever it might be, the school or the work environment, and, and to realize they're not going to be there. This is maybe a chance meeting and street witnessing or what, and then they pray with you, and they're going to be gone, but the Holy Spirit didn't let go of you. 
there, there have been times where I have prayed with people to receive the Lord. I know their story. I know what's going on. I know what they're coming out of. I know that how indoctrinated they are in some kind of religious whatever or how addicted to sin that they might be or whatever it might be, and you get done praying with them, and I'm not going to have a chance to continue to be a part of their life, and they go back to what? And you can sometimes think in your mind, God, the only way they're going to make it is if you keep a firm grip on them. And yet the Lord does that. Paul and Barnabas were kicked out of the city, but you can't stop the work of the Holy Spirit. You think about how many of us in this room realize, boy, from those early days, what I faced, what I was up against and all, how little help I had, how little I knew, the only explanation for me to con continue in this and grow into maturity as a Christian is because of the Holy Spirit and His work um, in our lives. Listen, anyone who's in the hands of the Holy Spirit is in very, very good hands. Now, the rejection of Jesus and the gospel both then and now, it, it, rarely, it, it is rarely what it appears to be outwardly. Um, we only know the reason that they rejected Paul and Barnabas and rejected the gospel because the Holy Spirit tells us that they did that out of envy. Otherwise, it would just look like, you know, righteous indignation or they, they disagreed with Paul's handling of the Scriptures and doctrine and so forth. But that's not what's going on in this rejection. What's going on is they are envious of Paul and Barnabas, and, and, uh, and all of this is born completely out of that. Jesus said something very remarkable about mankind's rejection of him whether it be men or women. And he said it in John chapter 3. And, and, and what he said uh, is linked with the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. Jesus declared, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, sometimes we can think he stopped there, but he didn't stop there. He went on and he continued to say, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, uh, why? Because it's already condemned. But that the world through him might be saved. Jesus continued, he who believes in him, that is in Jesus, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then here it is. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. As God looks at the rejection of his Son and the salvation that's found in his Son and the rejection of the gospel, when he looks through all of the excuses and all of the words and all of the appearances and all of the deflections and all, and he looks right into the core of a person, what he always finds as the core reason is darkness. It's darkness. And there is some kind of darkness in a person's life that they simply do not want to give up in order to come into the light now and walk with God. It, is, it can be, you know, sins, 
you know, like sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of sins. It can be more sophisticated sins like pride, where my ideas are uh, elevated in my own mind and my own life, even above uh, God's. I still think that I'm smarter than God. It can be materialism, where I have no interest at all in making God the master passion of my life. There's still a bunch more stuff that I want to get and he who dies with the most toys uh, wins. It can be a relationship that someone knows that if I became a Christian, I would have to give up this relationship or something would have to change there, and I'm not uh, willing to do that. Sometimes it can just be selfishness. It can be selfism, and selfism is dominant within our culture where I still want to sit on the throne of my own life. I don't want to be accountable to anyone. I don't want anyone's morality in my life. I don't want anybody telling me what's right and wrong or good and bad. And I, I don't even want God to have that place in my life. I want my life to be all about me, not about God and, and loving Him and then loving others. And Jesus is teaching that one day all rejection of Him and the gospel is going to be exposed for this at its core. At its core, all rejection of Jesus is tied to some darkness in my heart or in my mind or some place that I love more than light. It will never be an issue of I was too intelligent to become a Christian or God didn't give me enough evidence to believe in him and so forth. It is always caused by some kind of moral darkness or love for sin. And in the 62 years that I've been alive and in the 35 years that I've been a Christian and in the 30-plus years that I've been a pastor and knowing my own heart very, very well and having talked with a lot of people, watched a lot of things, engaged with a lot of people, and engaged in this world that you and I uh, live in in the same way that you're engaged in it, I have no doubt in my mind that a rejection of Christ at its core is a darkness in a person's heart that I don't want to give up in order to walk in the light. And that's what God says. There's a lot of gobbledygook, you know, here in the world and a lot of words and a lot of how can you say and your truth isn't from me and so forth. But from the clarity of heaven, Jesus just essentially says, believe me on this. That's what is at the core of all unbelief. And so you notice the same message, the same exact words preached by Paul in that synagogue pre pre produced three very, very different reactions. And what was true of that audience in Antioch of Pisidia 2,000 years ago is true of every single audience who hears God's offer of salvation even today and that that salvation is found by trusting in Jesus himself. There's always the three reactions. And Paul couldn't change it. If he wanted all those people to be saved in that synagogue, and he wanted all of them to be saved, there's nothing he could do to change the fact that there's never one reaction to that gospel. There's always multiple reactions. Paul couldn't change it. You can't change that. Even Jesus declared in his parable of the soils, or better known as the parable of the sower. Even there, he declared that it's really a relatively small number of hearts that are really open to God's truth and God's word and his gospel and willing to accept what God 
uh, has to say and then allow a miracle to happen in their lives. And that's the parable where Jesus talked about the sower that went out to sow the seed, and the seed was the Word of God, and it fell on four different kinds of soils, which represents the hearts of men that hear the Word of God. Some soil was hard. It was on the wayside. Some of it was rocky soil. Some of it was filled with thorns, and then some of it was good soil, and it brought forth fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. Now, concerning this realization that people have the freedom to accept or reject or people are going to respond to the gospel in three different ways, for most of us, we don't struggle with that when we think about it in terms of the whole wide world, when we think about it in terms of seven billion people. We don't struggle with it when we think of strangers hearing the gospel. And yes, some are going to accept and some are going to reject. But we can really struggle with this when it hits a lot closer to home for us, when it ends up proving true concerning our sons and our daughters, our fathers and our mothers, and other people that we love most in life. The Bible teaches that for you and I as Christians, we're ambassadors. We, are, we represent a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And an ambassador is someone who goes where he or she is sent on behalf of that kingdom, and then they deliver the message that the king has given them to deliver. And so ambassadors go where they're sent. They deliver the message that they've been sent to deliver but they have absolutely no control over how the message is going to be received. And neither do we uh, when we share the gospel with people, even with our loved ones. We deliver the message, but what they do now with that message is between them and God. It's between them and the author of that invitation, God himself. And what they do with it is not our responsibility and sometimes for some of us, not all of us, but some of us are real type A's. Some of us are ultra-responsible kind of people. We're the most responsible people in our family, maybe. We're the most responsible person in our class or in our school or in our workplace or in our neighborhood. We just got a terminal case of being responsible. And so for that kind of person, a type A who is su feels super responsible and has a great sense of, of responsibility in life, we can come to think that somebody's salvation or what they do with the gospel, especially those who we love the most in life, that somehow we begin to think that it's our responsibility rather than theirs. And we think, if only I did this, then they would. Or if only I said this, then they would. Or if only I was this, then this would happen. And then we come to carry all of this pressure to get them saved. But we can't make a decision for anyone to become a Christian. We can't make that for anyone else. The only person we can make that decision for is ourselves. And it's important to recognize as Christians where our responsibility begins and where it ends and all of this is ambassadors. We share God's offer of salvation. That is our responsibility. But then what a person does with it is their responsibility, and you and I cannot carry that. 
We are not intended to carry that in life. Otherwise, we're going to get wiped out. We're going to take a responsibility on ourselves that we're not intended to, uh, to take, and it will become a great burden. We share. We engage. We, of course, want to deliver the gospel to people. We want to maintain contact with people in order to be an influence for good and for God in their life. We certainly want to answer any questions that they have. We certainly will continue to pray for our loved ones, but that's all we can do. What has to happen has to happen between them and God, and there's nothing you can do about that. And you can't improve upon what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in bringing them to Him anyway. So if you're in that place, some super responsible person or maybe not, but you are carrying the weight of the salvation of some other person, and yet you have let them know the means to be saved, you're carrying a burden you're not intended to carry, and you need to let that go. Yes, stay engaged in their life. Continue to pray for them, but their salvation does not and will never depend on you. One of the things that is very encouraging to realize in this vein is to remember and to realize how um, mightily, how active and how powerfully active the Holy Spirit is in bringing people to Him. Uh, those of us who are Christians in this room, the overwhelming majority of us, you realize how, I mean, if we were to, to um, you know, look in the, this room and, and, and uh, you might have been and knew everybody's story concerning salvation, you might realize that the person in front of you or behind you would have probably by their high school class or at work or in their neighborhood or in some book club or whatever it might be, they would have labeled you as the least likely human being to ever become a Christian, ever in one lifetime or a hundred lifetimes. It's not going to happen. And yet you did. And why? Because the Holy Spirit wouldn't let you loose. And the Holy Spirit worked on you day after day after day to make you discontent with the life that you were in the middle of and to make you see what the great questions are in life and how God is the only one that can answer those questions in the emptiness of life apart from God and the degradation and the bondage of sin and so forth. And God continued to hold on to us until we one day became a Christian. And that's a part of our testimony. All of us look back and we realize, wow, what God did. I never thought. But then to realize that that is not a unique experience to us. God is doing that all day, every day, in every single human life. It isn't that if he did it more in their life, they would become a Christian like we did. If God did it as much in their life as he did in our life, then they would become a Christian. No, he is doing that every bit as much in their life, day in and day out, all day, every day, as he ever did in your life and in my life. And it's a wonderful thing to stop and to realize concerning the salvation of our loved ones that the Holy Spirit is working in that way in their lives. We do not have to try and take God's responsibility or a person's responsibility in getting them saved. 
this is in very, very good hands. God knows how to save people, get through to them, and bring them to him, but he'll never violate a person's free will in doing so. Now, I want to close by noticing a couple of uh, interesting phrases in our passage, one that's directed toward those who are Christians, those who trusted in Jesus as a result of hearing the gospel in Antioch, and then the words that are spoken in the passage related to those who rejected the gospel. Notice in verse 48, those who believed God's invitation and accepted it by trusting in Jesus were told, and as many, verse 48, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, they believed. Now, the Bible teaches that God is omniscient, and what that means is, is that he knows everything. There's nothing that he uh, doesn't know. And included among the things that he knows is he knows uh, every single person who will ultimately trust in Jesus for salvation, and he knows it long before we ever do. And out of that foreknowledge, he chooses or he predestines them for salvation. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8, for whom he, that is God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And all of this that is a product of God's foreknowledge, his predestination, his choosing. It comes out of his foreknowledge. He knows what we're going to choose and then chooses us as a result. He knows what's going to happen before it ever happens. He has foreknowledge. You and I, at best, we have afterknowledge. We do not have foreknowledge. And so he is at a tremendous advantage. And so concerning salvation, God knows what everyone is going to do before they do it. But the interesting thing about it is the Bible teaches just as equally that God's foreknowledge doesn't make us any less responsible before him for the decision that we make. Now, notice in verse 46, God's, uh, the words that are spoken by Paul to those that rejected God's invitation of salvation. And Paul declared, they judged themselves unworthy of everlasting life. And that's a very interesting way to put it. They, he declared them to judge themselves. They judge themselves as unworthy of everlasting life. And how Paul puts that, how he phrases it, is he emphasizes our personal responsibility for our eternal destination. You have judged yourself and what you have done with Christ. And he makes, it, it makes them personally responsible for the decision. Now, one of the things we don't like in our culture, I mean, this is like the culture that we live in is crazy. If, <sighs> I mean, if, the, if, the reperco- if this was like a TV show, okay. But I mean, what people are doing, this has consequences. This is real life. This is not a, you know, a rehearsal This is a big deal. And you notice within our culture, on an epidemic level, the level of blame shifting. Nobody's responsible for anything anymore. 
and, and so no matter what I do, what I think, what I say, and then the repercussions begin to fall on my head, it's always somebody else's fault. It's either how I was raised or my place in society or my parents or my friends or my education or lack of education or what. We're the biggest group of blame shifters in probably human history, and it's, and it's crazy, and it, will, it won't be able to go on. It does blow up uh, ultimately. But you look at the degree to which human beings and, and the lengths that we're able to go to, and the United States of America today is like a study in it, like they ne- this thing never went crazy like this before in history. Nobody had the margins or the luxuries or the wealth to be able to do so but we are doing it. And this attempt to escape from responsibility. And the problem is, is that when you are raised, and especially if you're not a Christian yet in this room, when this is the culture that is fashioning you, then, and you see continually people being able to skirt their personal responsibility for their actions and for their beliefs and what they say and so forth, we then carry that over to God. And we believe that ultimately we can stand before God and that somehow we're going to be able to do a blame shift or there's going to be some kind of excuse that this is not my responsibility, this is somebody else's responsibility that I never trusted in your son. And so this, this whole thing, this whole mindset is so so dominant today to just stop and look at it. It's one of the reasons I'm so thankful for the Word of God. It just says things plain. It says things clear. It says things directly. And then I can look at it and say, okay, now what am I going to do that between me and God? But I'm thankful every day that I get to open this book up and know I'm going to be in the truth. I am reading truth here now. And somebody is speaking something that makes sense in the world today, and somebody is speaking with clarity, and not only with clarity, but in a way that matches what all of us know within our heart is how we ought to live. And so the importance of this in realizing that they're going to be responsible, Paul brings it out, that they judge themselves Uh, unworthy of everlasting life. And the fact of the matter is, is that every one of us in this room and every person in this world, we judge ourselves for eternity. We judge ourselves. We determine our eternal destination. And we judge ourselves eternally based upon what we do with Jesus and the message of uh, salvation that is found in him. And if we trust in him, we receive the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life one day in the presence of God in, in heaven. If we reject him, then we, all, then we will die in our sins and spend eternity separated from God. And the only other eternal location for eternity other than heaven, and that is in the judgment of hell. And the fascinating thing to me is that God's Word, in His speaking about this, He's not fuzzy about this. He's not uncertain about this. He declares it. It's one of the reasons, I mean, there's a million reasons that I believe the Word of God to be the Word of God. But nobody would say these things if they 
were just, this was a popularity club. I mean, you think about Jesus, and um, if, if the idea was to like, okay, let's make Christianity like the religion of the world. Uh, let's make the God of the Bible the most popular God in the world. He's the only God. But you know what I'm saying related to this. I mean, God could... Any of us can be fooled so easy. We can be so flattered so easily. We can just be schmoozed so easily. And if God wanted to be, like, if this was all about him being popular, yeah, he's the, oh, you know, and all of this. I mean, he knows how to do that. And then he just messes the whole thing up by talking about hell, talking about a narrow way. Jesus, he does the Sermon on the Mount. He could go down in history as one of the great religious leaders uh, in the world and, and laying things out. And then elsewhere in his ministry, he says, I am singular, the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus declares that there's, or Father declares that there's salvation that's found only in the Son. All he had to do was just jettison that stuff, and everything would be a pep rally for him all of the time. But it's not about his popularity, because unlike the populations of the world, this is about truth, and this is about truth concerning salvation, and this is the truth about eternity and heaven and hell and the most important things in life. And he doesn't hide it, and he doesn't, you know, put it in some kinds of words as a wordsmith or somebody that's putting a political speech together. He's very upfront about it, upfront in a way that it must be true, or why would he bother with the aggravation? John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, and he said, and this is the testimony, that God has given us everlasting life, and this life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's called clarity. John the Baptist declared, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. He who believes in the Son, or John declares, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus himself declared, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Why so strong on this issue? Because it's the most important decision anyone will make in life. It is the most important decision that you will make in life. And the greatest thing that a person can do to bless the heart of God and to bless the heart of our Creator is to put our faith in His Son. Nothing compares to that. To put our faith in His Son and to trust in His Son for the forgiveness of sins, especially in light of the price that he paid and to provide that forgiveness to us. And the greatest insult, conversely, that a person can mete out upon the heart of God, the greatest sin that any human being will ever commit against God is to reject his son and to reject the salvation that is found in his son. Imagine, imagine, not in a John Lennon way, but imagine how the rejection of the Son of God is viewed in the holiness and the perfection 
of heaven. Someone says, I don't believe in heaven. You better be right. You better be right. But imagine what an offense. There's no fallenness in heaven. There's just beauty. There's perfection. There's reverence. There's honesty. There's truth. There's worship. All of these things. It's not the muddy, moral, and emotional, and intellectual mess that the world is. There's tremendous clarity and beauty there. And imagine as the angelic beings and others there in that heavenly scene what the impact must be at a human being rejecting the Son of God in light of the price that He paid to provide the forgiveness. I mean, that's about as heavy as it possibly can get. The rejection, I'm not talking about the world. I know that in the world that I live in, the rejection of Christ is a triviality. It is a nothing. In the, in overwhelmingly in the culture in which we live. But it is not here that we will one day give an account to God. That's going to happen one day in heaven, and thus our greatest concern needs to be not how it is viewed on earth, but rather how all of this is going to be viewed one day in the glory of that heavenly scene. And that's why Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day, concerning this. And he said to them, Verily, verily, I say to you, what the tax collectors, I say to you, that the tax collectors and harlots enter into the kingdom of God before you. Spoke that to the religious leaders. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe in him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward repent and believe him. And then Jesus went on to talk about in his own public ministry how the tax collectors and the harlots were coming to know him while the religious community, by and large, continued to reject him. And the tax collectors and the harlots, they were terrible sinners. But in coming to Jesus, they were not remotely the sinners that the person who rejects the very Son of God and the salvation that is found in him alone and then dies in that condition. All other sins are readily forgivable, but there is no forgiveness for that sin, and it is all a very serious business. Sometimes you hear people say, well, I can't believe in a God who casts people into eternal judgment. Blame shifting! (laughs) Excuses, blame shifting, again, can't even see the folly of the statement. Sorry for waking some of you up. God does nothing of the sort. All he does is merely confirm the reservations that we make for ourselves, as Paul spoke uh, to them. Each one of us determines our own eternal destination. The Bible teaches that in terms of God directed toward your life and my life, your soul, my soul, that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance you sit here and you're not yet a Christian, and you say, what is God's desire for my life? His desire is that you would not perish, but that you would come to repentance. If he gets his will in your life, you will be in heaven. 
the only way you can end up in eternal judgment is if someone other than him gets their will or your will for your life. The responsibility lies upon us. And he gives us the freedom to choose because it, only the freedom of choice makes our choice meaningful. But when we make that choice and die in that choice, then ultimately he confirms that choice. Our decision regarding what we choose to do with Jesus is the verdict that we pronounce upon ourselves. In another exchange with the Jewish religious leaders of his day, Jesus speaking to them, they'd watched his whole life, every move he ever made. They listened to everything that he ever taught, and yet they continued to reject him. And in the face of that rejection, Jesus spoke to them, and he posed a simple question. And he said, which of you convicts me of sin? Which of you has ever seen me do something wrong, heard me say something wrong, heard me teach something wrong? Which of you convicts me of sin? You've had me under the microscope for three and a half years. Which of you can point out one sin in my life, one reason for rejection? And the response to that question that he posed to them was silence. And what you have to understand is every one of those men would have given their right arm to be able to break that silence, and not one of them could do so. And Jesus alone was able to then break that silence, and he did. And he did it with another question. Which of you convicts me of sin? Silence. And then he posed the next question. Then why, if I tell the truth, do you not believe in me? And if you reject Jesus and the salvation that's found in him alone, one day he will pose the same questions to you and there will be no answer for those questions any more than there were 2,000 years ago because there is no legitimate reason for rejecting him, no answer to that question, not then and not now. Well, this is the old-time religion, isn't it? I thought that kind of preaching is gone, that kind of teaching is gone. I mean, isn't church all about us and telling us all about how great we are and how God is the big Pillsbury Doughboy in heaven and the big genie that just gives us whatever we want and all this stuff that is all around us and is an awful apostasy. And it isn't something that you necessarily I'm going to camp on you know, every week we take the passages as they come. But there ought to be that kind of sobriety about eternity, the value of a human soul, the importance of truth related to that decision. If it's not going to be found in a church, then where in the world is it going to be found? As that passage says in the Bible, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Has God become your enemy because he tells you the truth about you, but then doesn't leave you there, tells you then the truth about how to be saved and forgiven and enter into a personal relationship with him? It's serious business. It is the most single, most important decision that you will ever make. And I urge you to trust in Christ this morning 
today, the world that we live in, this three score and ten, however any, much of us are going to live, all this is is exactly what C.S. Lewis said. This is the shadowlands. This is nothing. This is nothing. This is nothing. This is a vapor that gives way to eternity. This is preparation one day for eternity. And God desires that you would be in that scene with him, and he's made a way for it to happen in his son. And there's going to be men and women and pastors up in front immediately after the service, and they and we would love to pray with you to receive the forgiveness of sins and begin that relationship with God today. It's all there for the asking, all there for the receiving. Let's stand now and close in prayer. Lord, thank you for telling the truth. It's so hard to find truth today. Everything is parsed. Everything is wordsmithed. Everybody says the exact opposite by trying to appear that they're saying something else, and it's just crazy, and it's frustrating, and it's heartbreaking because so many people are being fooled by it and becoming casualties of all of it while all of the madness just continues to move forward and harm people. Thank you for this book. Thank you for the heart of love that you have. Thank you for being willing to tell the truth. Thank you for making your heart vulnerable in a way that you never had to, to be rejected by mere human beings like us, knowing that not everyone would reject you, but that many would hear of your offer of salvation and the forgiveness of sins and taken advantage of receiving that, Lord. And I just pray and we pray for each person that doesn't know you here today that in the simplicity of their heart between you and them that you would draw them into your kingdom do what you did in us, Lord, and then put a very firm grip upon them and be faithful to them in their life all the way from this moment in time into the glory of heaven. We bless you for who you are this morning in this place. We bless you for your salvation. We bless you for your love. We bless you for your truth. And Lord, we pray too for one another, for those that are carrying some kind of hyper-responsibility for the salvation of someone else that they have no control over. Keep them praying, Lord. Give them wisdom in the relationship. Keep, keep them active in the relationship and so forth, Lord. But take that burden off of them today. And we ask all these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen.